Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This week on Q&A, Alison Stanger, professor of political science at Middlebury College in Vermont. She talks about the reaction of Middlebury students to author Charles Murray appearing on campus this past March. Dr. Murray and Professor Stanger were physically attacked following the event. Professor Allison Stanger, what's the now fairly famous Middlebury protest? What happened, you mean? That's yeah. interesting in knowing. Well, the story's been told many times, but I might as well recount it here for you. We, uh, a student group, uh, the AEI Club invited Charles Murray, who's a rather controversial figure, libertarian scholar, to campus. And because they knew he was controversial, they invited me to, to ask him the first three or four questions. And it went from there. Um, this was back in March. This was back in March. The week, you know, the, the event was on March 2nd. And there was a run-up to the event where tensions rose and rose to the point where they were whipped into a frenzy so that some students organized a shutdown of the speech that was successful. We had an alternative plan. We went to a remote location to simulcast the exchange anyway, which enraged some of the protesters still further. And so that's where you got the incident where, where, where I was injured outside the lecture hall. The Middlebury College is where? Middlebury College is in the Green Mountains of Vermont, the Champlain Valley. So in some sense, you can in part explain the reaction because it's almost a bubble within a bubble. You know, every liberal arts college campus is something of a bubble, which is a good thing because liberal learning takes place there. But also, you know, it's in Vermont, which is the home of Ben and Jerry's, the home of Bernie Sanders, and also is the state in the union with the smallest percentage of voters who voted for Donald Trump. So that context, I think, is very important for understanding what transpired. How many students? Oh, gosh. Uh, 2350, I believe, is the current number. So fairly, fairly small. I found the number $63,000 online that says that's what tuition and room and board cost for a year. Yes, it's an expensive proposition, but we make a real effort to try and make the experience uh, available to as many bright, capable young people as possible. So there are a significant number of students at Middlebury on full financial aid, but an even greater number pay that enormous amount, which is quite, a, quite extraordinary. What's your own background? Where did you get your education? I got my education in, in two places. I, I was a student at Elmhurst College, which is a small liberal arts college outside of Chicago for three years. I was a math major and loved mathematics at the time, so I ran out of math classes to take my senior year. Uh, there was a senior residency requirement, so I was going to have to take electives in other departments, and that's not what I wanted to do. So I transferred to Ball State University, where I could do applied mathematics, uh, and graduated from Ball State in the great state of Indiana, and which that, is where you hail from as well. That is right, but <laughs> your city is what? In, My city is Fort Wayne. And what about your 
did you get a master's and then a PhD or, or your PhD? Yeah, I kind of am a living example of, of uh, t- taking some time to figure out exactly what interests you and why. So I did an undergraduate degree in mathematics and actual science. I then went on to the London School of Economics, did a diploma in economics, then a master's in Soviet area studies at Harvard University, followed by a PhD in political science, again at Harvard. So, you know, it was this, this, this trajectory from, you know, set of questions that really have answers, which is what I like about mathematics, to an interest in some of the unanswerable questions, which come from the humanities. So I embrace both of those strands in my, in my thinking and in my teaching. How long have you been at Middlebury College? Oh, good. I think I had my 25. I got a pin because I'd been there 25 years. So I went there directly after graduate school. You're not um, this semester, though, or this year at Middlebury? I'm not at Middlebury this this uh, year because I'm on sabbatical. I had a scheduled sabbatical, so I'm currently a scholar in residence at the New America Foundation. And what's which that? Which is great. What does it do? It's a think tank in Washington that um, is pretty much going to enable me to work on my, my books and provides a great environment for me to do that. When you're at Middlebury, what do you teach? I teach a whole range of courses. I teach a course on American foreign policy. I'm trained in international relations, but I have an interest in a variety of fields. So American foreign policy, the political development of Western Europe, a first-year seminar on empires, a new course that I really love called The Politics of Virtual Realities. And I'm leaving some things out, but that kind of covers the main, the main courses that I'm known for. What is your view of your relationship with students all, over all these 25 years? I love my students, um, and I think, you know, they love me back. I think I'm seen as an honest broker in the sense that stu- a student group asked me to interview Charles Murray, but then two weeks later I also interviewed Edward Snowden. So I'm kind of an equal opportunity <laughs> interlocutor. Um, yeah, I, I've been very happy at Middlebury because to me, I do teaching, I do research and writing, but with the teaching, I'm absolutely sure at the end of the day that I've made some kind of a difference in the world because there's nothing like opening up someone's mind, mind to, to new possibilities. And that's what teaching is all about. Did the students protest Edward Snowden at all? No, not at all. And why is that, you think? It's really, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, most college campuses are leaning left or whatever you want to call it. In some sense, those terms left and right don't mean anything today. But they're voting Democratic. And um, so a a scholar associated with the Republican Party is controversial to them, which is unfortunate since the Republican Party is the other major party in the United States. But that's just the reality of it. Uh, Snowden is, is, is revered by the left, and so there are no protests when he appears on campus. Uh, and I'd like to see that remedied. I mean, that's why I think it's very important, even though I'm a, my students know I'm a Democrat, I think it's even all the more important to engage with someone like Charles Murray precisely because it shows them that I believe in a free and fair exchange of views in my classroom, which you have to have for liberal education to take place. I looked up the ethnic uh, population in Vermont and found that there are 2.5% African Americans in the state and in the city of Middlebury or the town, 
zero two five, I think, or something like that, which is almost non-existent. Yeah. So, what does that do for the bubble you're talking about? That's a really great question uh, because, yeah, uh, Vermont is one of the whitest states in the union, and basically, what a school like Middlebury College and elite liberal arts college is doing is bringing in students from a vast array of different backgrounds, students of color. And they land in Vermont, and there's no one who can cut their hair, and they feel completely out of place, and the institution has to try to do something to make them feel like this is their institution too. And so that's at the heart of what's going on here. I think it's really easy to paint it as a story of, you know, mean uh, conservatives versus students of color. But really what's taking place is that we have a, uh, a situation where, where um, American values are at stake, and they don't belong to a particular party or a particular identity group. They belong to all Americans. And I think that's at the heart of this issue we're discussing. But I wouldn't want to downplay the, the, the anguish that was expressed through those protests and through the shutdown, because it's real, the emotions are real, they have to be validated. But to me, the most important part is thinking about, okay, you feel that way. What do we need to do about it so that it's different? How can we move the needle forward and make this a better place for you? And from my perspective, that's not about shutting down speech or banning certain speakers from campus. It's about talking together about how we make the environment a place where everybody belongs. How often have you met someone who teaches at Middlebury who's conservative? That's a... (laughs) You know, there's not that many. But have you ever met anybody? Oh, of course. They're some of my good friends because they're interesting to talk to. I mean, part of the reason I want my students to engage with someone like Charles Murray is I myself at Harvard benefited enormously from interacting with some of the great conservative thinkers there. People like Harvey Mansfield, uh, James Q. Wilson, even Samuel Huntington. These are professors with whom you could disagree profoundly, but that interaction was so important uh, for my own personal development that I wanted to be available to other students. Charles Murray, 1994, appeared on this program. It was called Book Notes at the time. Mm-hmm. Talked about the bell curve. I just want to run this. Sure. You know, the whole book is about this distribution and this change. What about the bell curve as a title? And Dick and I, Dick Ernstein and I, heard it, and it was one of those cases where we said, yeah, that's a wonderful title. What's it mean? It refers to that picture on the front of the book. That stitch looks like a bell. And uh, it's a phenomenon you see in all kinds of things in nature, whether it's height or weight or, in this case, IQ. Things distribute themselves so that you get most people in the middle and you get a few people out on each end, and the book is about the people on each end. How much did you know about this when he was slated to come to Middlebury? Oh, I know about it. I know about the whole bell curve controversy. I actually used the New Republic Symposium, uh, which had uh, Murray and Hernstein and then their critics uh, write about the book, and I used it in a a first-year seminar on American constitutional democracy. Uh, And I found it a really effective pedagogical device precisely because it, it provoked students and got them angry. But then you could take them to the text and say, okay, okay, you think it says that. Where does it say that? And then they begin to realize that actually they don't like the bottom line of the argument, uh, but they need to focus on what chain in that logical reasoning or what 
about those set of assumptions is problematic for them. And that's an, that's an incredi incredibly useful exercise. And so you take that kind of initial shock, if you will, and channel it into reasoned discussion, and I think everybody learns something. Uh, in reading about, before you came today, uh, about the incident back in March, I saw some reference to the Southern Poverty Law Center and the description of Charles Murray as yeah. one of the reasons why these students reacted the way they did. I just want to, we got on their website, and I want to read you the beginning of what they say and ask yeah. you what you think of this. Charles Murray, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, has become one of the most influential social scientists in America using racist pseudoscience and misleading statistics to argue that social inequality is caused by the genetic inferiority of the black and Latino communities, women and the poor. And it goes on to say about him, uh, according to Murray, disadvantaged groups are disadvantaged because on average they cannot compete with white men who are intellectually, psychologically and morally superior. Murray advocates advocates the total elimination of the welfare state, affirmative action, and the Department of Education, arguing that public policy cannot overcome the innate deficiencies that cause unequal social and educational outcomes. My yeah. question to you is, is that accurately portraying Charles Murray? Of course not. I mean, if that were what Charles Murray was really writing, I would see no point in engaging with him. But the, the, the frightening thing about that website is that in the run-up to his appearance on campus, you had faculty and students alike taking just what you've read to me and saying, this man can't speak here. Even though you can't substantiate some of those assertions, if you go, they have a set series of poll quotes, which aren't linked to the original text, by the way. If you go and look at those quotes in context, they're, he's often saying the opposite of what they're saying he's saying. So. It was a terrible situation that I think led to what happened, that people didn't think for themselves, didn't read for themselves, didn't just come and hear what he had to say first before drawing conclusions about his character and his past work. But it was like something you couldn't control because people just kept waving that website and saying that's all they had to know. We had faculty members at Middlebury College who would openly acknowledge they had never read Charles Murray. But because of the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center website, this is all you needed to know to know what you had to do to be a righteous human being. That's problematic to me. Just want to run 25 seconds of the footage at Middlebury protests so people can get a sense of what it was like in the room. Before we do that, though, yeah. what, uh, where was this room? How big a room was it? I think it seats 300. It's McCullough Student, Wilson Hall, McCullough Student Center. It's the same place. Uh, it's the same place two weeks later, in which I interviewed Edward Snowden. And the so, format for the evening was, how did it actually uh, come about? Well, what's interesting there is it's um, it was restricted to students only, so you had to have a Middlebury ID to be admitted to the lecture hall, and uh, there were outside agitators that people refer to, but they were not inside the lecture hall. So what you're seeing inside the lecture hall is all. Middlebury students. Okay, let's just look at this yep. and get a feel for it.
Miles Murray go away, Rexus. Sexist, racist, racist, sexist, sexist, anti-gay. Uh, uh, anti-gay. Any of that true? The, from when you're feeling from being around Charles Murray. And didn't his daughter go to Middlebury? Yeah, his daughter went to Middlebury, and I would not use any of those terms to to describe the man that I met and I know. From what you know of the students, why were they doing that? Oh, it's such a, it's such a, this is a tragedy you've shown on your screen, because I think there was a small minority of students who wanted to shut the speech down. And then there were their allies. There were their allies who wanted to be supportive. And I know student after student who went there and actually did things they weren't planning to do precisely because that small minority was so outraged and so angry that they felt like to be a good human being, you have to stand by their side and do the same thing. Uh, what are they angry about? about the gross inequality in the United States, about the existence of unequal treatment before the law in our criminal justice system, about the election of Donald Trump, which none of those students wanted, all of those things. You know, we have real problems in this country that need to be addressed. So they're legitimate in being concerned. The tragedy to me is that the strategy they pursued actually brought, brought about the very opposite of what they had hoped to accomplish. Yeah. Charles Murray is at the American Enterprise Institute. This was the American Enterprise Institute on campus, a, a, a cl- I mean, a, a student group? It's a club, just like any other kind of club on campus. Was know, he paid think. to go to Middlebury? Uh, no, no, nobody from Middlebury paid him anything, no, did you that pay- I know of. I mean, I'm not, I'm not part of the club, I don't know, but my understanding is... By the way, did you have to pay Snowden? <laughs> he was paid a large amount of money. Who would, who would have paid that? The student activities board. That, that was the stu- student choice speaker, the Middlebury College Activities Board. So we have some video of you. After this erupted, you moved out of that room. How long did the demonstration go on? It just, it just accelerated from there precisely because the speech was not shut down. I think that just enraged that small group of people who were determined to shut it down. So there were fire alarms going off. Um, people screaming obscenities through the, through the window. I don't know what clip you're going to show, but I haven't even watched it's you, any of it's it. It's you sitting down with uh, Charles Murray. Yeah, I haven't watched any of it because yeah. it's so unsettling to me. Precisely because they, they, they uh, use these directional mics. So what we were hearing is not what you're hearing on the tape because it's, it's enhanced so that you can hear the conversation. But it was absolutely terrifying to try to continue that with what was going on. How far ahead of this did you know something was going to happen? I didn't think anything was going to happen. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I mean, before I walked out the door, uh, to, where we were confronted with the crowd that injured me, I was saying to someone, you know, I left my computer in the car, so why don't I go separately and I'll go get my car and meet you at the dinner? I had no clue that was going to happen. Had you met Charles Murray before? I've never met him before, no. But I had read his books before, and I knew of him, and I knew him as someone that the Republican Party takes very seriously. So to me, <laughs> this is precisely the sort of person I want my students to engage with. I mean, if we're a department of political science that only allows the views of Democrats to appear on our campus, uh, we're just an indoctrination center. We're not a, we're not a institution of higher learning. Let's go back to, you moved to this other room. That, was that set up in advance? Yes. With television cameras in there? Exactly, exactly. It was the plan B, so that it could continue even if the shutdown And how far away from where the auditorium 
uh, is was this room. I wish it had been further away. It was actually in the same building, same in building. the basement of that building. Okay, let's just run. Yeah. This is only, again, 30 seconds. Yeah. So in other words, Harvard in 1952 is a place with uh, a, a lot of rich kids, some of whom were smart. You then go to 1960, which is just eight, year, just eight years later. Mm -hmm. I, I told them to put people on the uh, fire yeah. alarms. Yeah. And they have somebody, uh, hold on. Well, hold I think we'll, I, Hold on, I think we'll, they'll be able to shut that off. This is unique in my academic career. Uh, when, when I was speaking at Earlham, where my son was attending, uh, oh, they pulled really? the fire alarm. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Earlham in our home mm -hmm. state of Indiana. Yes, sir. In Richmond. Anyway, go back to that setting there. How long did you then talk to Charles Murray? I think it was roughly, f I'm not sure, what, 30, 45 minutes. Well, he spoke first, and then we did the Q&A, and then we took, took questions from our students on Twitter. Did that was kind of nice. Any of the students that were in the room for the lecture stay with this whole process? Yeah, that's what's so fascinating to me, because on the one hand, you have... There's a, there's a coalition of students who are united in wanting to challenge Charles Murray, but in a variety of ways. So you have some who want to shut, shut him down. You have some students who participated in you know, the broken inquiry statement who actually asked questions on Twitter. So they stayed with it. They wanted to engage him. So I guess the main message I would want to give to your audience is that there's a variety of views at Middlebury. It's not this monolithic extremist place. It's just that a certain small segment of the population's voice was amplified in a variety of ways, and you can draw all kinds of erroneous conclusions from that about Middlebury students. In your opinion, did this start with the students or with one of your fellow professors or both a combination of that? The shutdown? The whole or, idea of trying to shut it down. Well, there were all these meetings beforehand, and a number of my faculty colleagues attended them where they were discussing resistance. And this is the interesting thing, I think, is that uh, a lot of the students who organized the resistance were used to being unanimously applauded by the faculty. So, for example, with the executive order against immigration, you know, some of the same students who were involved in the protests against Charles Murray were leaders in that resistance, and they had the whole faculty behind them. I was there, you know, with my constitution, at a rally waving my constitution and my American flag because I like to keep those front and center and everybody supported them and then part of what was so disappointing to them with this is they thought they were taking it to the next level I think and shutting it down and everything fractured and they were condemned by a large number of people and they were expecting to be praised so that's part of the educational process they made a mistake and they've got to think about what that means for their life from there. At the end of your discussion with Charles Murray, you left that room and went where and what happened? Well, they took us to this time. I don't even, you know, the fact of the matter is I don't really remember um, much of it. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what door we went out. Um, but we were taken out of the, the, um, the hall and confronted this mob of angry people, some of whom were in masks, and they were shoving and jostling. They were, their target was Charles Murray. And I was a little bit behind him. And it kind of intensified. It looked like he was going to fall to the ground. And he's, he's at the time, was a 74-year-old man. So I just sort of did what any decent human being would do when you see a 74-year-old man on the verge of falling to the ground. I grabbed him by the arm, you know, both to, to, to make sure he didn't fall, but also I was afraid of being, it was, it was a large... I don't know how many, but I was really fearful of being separated from them and being left behind. So I took his arm, and when I did that, that's when it all turned on me. 
uh, somebody pulled my hair, someone body slammed me from the other direction. Uh, then we finally made it to the car, and it was this horrific getaway scene where students were climbing on the car, shoving uh, you know, traffic signs under the car to try to keep it from moving forward, banging windows. Uh, we were so afraid we were going to hurt somebody. So poor Bill Berger, he's in the driver's seat. Who's that? He is the director of communications at Middlebury, and he was the one who devised the, the radio-free Middlebury alternative plan, if you will. He was driving, and he was taking directions from public safety outside about how to go, and it was sort of, move forward, retreat, move forward, retreat, and then I was in the, the on, on the passenger side, screaming, stop, you're going to hit someone! And so the car was just stopping and starting and stopping and starting, and, uh, uh, and I think that's what exacerbated my injuries. How badly were you injured? I didn't think badly at all. I kept saying, I'm going to be just fine, I'm going to ice it, but it was worse than I thought. <laughs> I mean, you had a collar on for a while. Yeah, yeah, but it took, it was like the slow realization. First, I realized something was wrong with my neck, so that night I was taken to the hospital. Uh, then two days later, I realized, you know, I was driving the wrong street, way on the street in my hometown. I couldn't find something that I knew where it was, and I realized, you know, I needed to go back to the hospital. After you were out of the hospital and after things quieted down, what did you do about all this? Oh, it was awful. I mean, it's just, I don't know. If, have you ever had a concussion? No. Well, for all those people out there who've had concussions, they know what it's like. Your brain just gets scrambled. And uh, the way they describe it is your brain is like a computer, and you can only... So they'll tell you, you just need to keep one window open at a time. You can't have multiple windows open. Well, guess what? Everything we do in life, practically, involves multiple windows. So that was deeply frustrating for me because I was supposed to stay in a dark room and you know not be on screens, and I was of course cheating and violating that. But but it was pretty frightening. Um, for how long? You know, I was in physical therapy until last month, so so it took a while to get better. Um, how did you feel emotionally about all this, and did you do anything with Middlebury uh, Middlebury's administration? Did you talk to them? Did you want to do anything about this? Oh, sure. You know, I was giving, putting in my two cents all along the way as best I could. Yeah. What, though? I, I read somewhere in all yeah. of this that 74 people were disciplined. Were, only, were those only students? I don't really know. I wasn't involved in the disciplinary procedures. I did not testify at the, at the, the hearings. How much did they do on campus about it? How many hearings did they have? I'm not sure. I wouldn't be a person to ask about it. I was dis disengaged from it. Uh, I was trying to get better. Were you doing this on purpose? I mean, you just wanted to stay away from the whole thing? Yeah, well, this is the first interview I've done, and I'm glad to be doing it with you because we can have an extended conversation. Uh, but I didn't want to speak to journalists until my brain had been restored to me because when something like this happens, you're angry. You're not... It's emotional. And... Part of what it was at stake to me in this is I wanted to model the behavior I wanted to see, if you will. I didn't want to respond emotionally. I wanted to respond with reason. I wanted to talk constructively about where we go from here, what it all means. And you can't do that until, you know, you're healthy. So I waited until now. If this happened again at Middlebury, do you have any idea what they would do? And you have a woman president in my, my yes. memory. Yes. Yes, we do. Uh, by again, what do you mean? I mean... But if, if this, yeah, this, if another lecture was shut down like this, yeah. Uh, well, let, let me put this in the mix. 
I'm sure there are a lot of people out there saying these students were great. Thank goodness they were there. They did the right thing. And then there's another group watching this that says, you know, I've given a lot of money to my alma maters. I've given a lot of money. I mean, you can. I, somebody's watching this that gave a lot of money to Middlebury. Mm -hmm. And they're saying to themselves, I didn't give my money so that it cost $63,000 a year for a student to go to school there so that they could do this kind of stuff. What would yeah. you say to them after all the dust settles in this? Well, we, you know, I think the president is trying to stand firm for the values that are so important for liberal education and for American democracy. And I'm hopeful that she's going to be able to prevail in that environment. I'm not a good person to ask about what's going there right now, on the, right now because I left Vermont in May and continued my convalescence in Michigan, um, which is where our family has a cottage that we've been going to for since I was born. It was kind of my hometown, if you will. What, so when, I haven't been on campus, so I'm not a good person to comment on what's going on there right now. I assume you have tenure. Yes, and, I do. And you will go back to Middlebury after this is all over? Uh, that's the plan. And if you're asked to moderate another discussion with a conservative slice Republican like this man is supposedly, would you do that again? Of course. I don't regret a single thing I did. I, I mean, to me, it's just enormously important that students be unafraid to confront controversial ideas and in my classroom speak their mind. And what concerns me is that I see some students, I've been told this repeatedly by students, that they're afraid to speak their mind because it might offend someone. And to me, that's catastrophic. Because if you can't speak your mind and make mistakes and learn from them, it's the end of liberal education. So what I do in my classroom, what was interesting is in my classroom, I continued to teach my one class on the political development of Western Europe after the incident. It was the one thing I would do. I would go and teach it and then go sleep for 15 hours. In my classroom, we were able to maintain an atmosphere where that was possible, even in the midst of all that controversy that was swirling over the Charles Murray fallout. And to me, that's deeply significant because, you know, it's in the hands of every single professor to create an environment where everybody feels like they belong, they can speak their mind. I tell them, I say, we're going to speak our mind, and if you offend someone, I want that person to call you out, and I want the person who, off was, who offended to apologize. And then we're going to move on because everybody makes mistakes. We're human. And we can't eliminate offense from the world because we're all so different. We're going to misunderstand and say the wrong thing. But we have to be allowed to say the wrong thing and correct it to have those conversations that actually educate us as human beings. Here's Charles Murray appearing on the Tucker Carlson Tonight Show in June of this year just talking about the incident. I expected, uh, because I've been briefed by the people at Middlebury, that the protests would occur. What, what we didn't know was whether they were going to keep it up forever. Yes. And my initial thought was, hell, I'll stand up here all night if I have to, to wait them out. This was not going to be a lecture uh, demonizing welfare mothers or things like that. I was going to say, you as members of the, the new elite have to be aware of all the, the ways in which the elite is screwing the working class in this country. What do you think of that statement? I think he, he has a point. I mean, and that's another tragic irony of what transpired is he wasn't even coming to Middlebury to speak about the bell curve, which was written over 25 years ago, 
25 years ago, I guess, and there have been all these advances in genetic research since. He was coming to speak about his 2012 book, Coming Apart, which had a message that helped to explain how this unexpected outcome, the election of Donald Trump, could actually transpire. So it's sad that we couldn't have a conversation about that book instead of looking backwards at something written long ago. What's a microaggression? A microaggression is when somebody offends someone without even knowing it. And even when you point it out, they still think you're being too sensitive or you just don't, you know, you, you, you should not be pointing it out. How much of the complaining goes on at Middlebury about microaggressions among the students or the professors? You know, I, I, my own take on microaggressions and trigger warnings is those are good things. That's like being a decent human being. If you're saying something and you're unaware that it really is deeply upsetting to another human being, well, you need to know about it. And you need to reflect on it. So I don't have a problem with, with the concept. Uh, I have a problem with people being expected to kind of preempt their mistakes before they make them, because that, that creates this chilling effect that is so damaging to the free exchange of ideas. Looking back to March when all this happened, mm-hmm. how much interest was there in the media to get you to talk? Oh, tons of interest. I mean, <laughs> I should take this opportunity to apologize to anybody whose email I did not respond to, um, because I just still have a huge trove of unanswered emails. I just was unable to look at screens or read them and I hope to respond to people in due time because I received wonderful notes from people. There's wonderful people all around the country who, who wrote things that made me feel so much better, and I'm deeply grateful to them, and I, I will respond to them in time. But you did write some op-ed pieces for the New York Times. Yes, I had to do that. That was probably not a wise idea, but I just had to. Why not? Well, because I wasn't supposed to be on a computer, so I sort of had to sneak, sneak that to, to do it. Um, uh, but... I just felt like I had to define the situation as I saw it. Those are interested is on March the 13th, mm-hmm. understanding the angry mob at the Middlebury that gave me a concussion. Yes. And the second one was... I Middlebury. didn't come up with that headline, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's the New York Times. Second one was on April the 3rd, Middlebury, my divided mm-hmm. campus. Um, how did that come about? Did they call you or did you call them? No, no, they called me. And what do they want from you? My perspective, yeah. Did they find other perspectives on the other side of people that thought this was the perfect thing to do? Oh, sure. New York Times is great about that. I mean, I was just on a panel with Ulrich Bayer, who wrote the kind of definitive uh, justification of, the, of shutting down speech, if you will. Yeah, he wrote a piece in the New York Times called What, what uh, Snowflakes Get Right. What's the broken inquiry? Broken inquiry was a was a heartfelt um, statement by students at Middlebury College. They put their names to it. it. Was brave to put it forward, where they were trying to explain why they had done what they had done, and it was a response to another piece that ran in the Wall Street Journal uh, on principles of free expression, written by my colleagues Keegan Callanan and Jay Perini. So they were broken inquiry was their attempt to respond point by point to what they were reading there. And people can read it for themselves and understand their perspective. How often is a conservative of any kind invited to speak on the Middlebury campus? 
Oh, well, a lot of a lot of times. I mean, they're they're. <laughs> What you'll find on college campuses is there are conservative faculty who I think camouflage their real views until they get tenure. Um, they're a minority, but they're there. And you just, you know, part of one of the wonderful things, not wonderful, it's the wrong word, but through this Charles Murray incident, I became aware that there were some conservatives on my faculty, and I didn't really, hadn't really realized pro, uh, previously that that what was their political leanings. And I think that's, that saddens me to some extent. Why shouldn't they be able to talk openly about their politics? We'd have a better conversation about the sorts of policies we need to debate together to move the country forward if people could be more open about thinking for themselves. Are you one of the 900-plus professors that is a member of the Heterodox Academy? No, I'm not. Are you aware of what it is? Of course, yes. I've read Do you have it. any opinion of it? I think it's great that that people are mo- mobilizing for heterodoxy. Yeah, I'm just not a joiner. I don't join things. <laughs> yeah, I want to show. Um, we have a list of, of some of the leading schools in the heterodox. They 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 decide. They they judge on whether or not universities are open or closed right. on all this. I want to put on the screen the top. Five, I believe, or six of the oh, look schools. At that. Purdue. That just happened. Is that your own? In the last couple of days. It's Isn't my that, alma mater. That's yes. your alma mater, yes. yeah. But the University of Chicago leads the list. They're number one. Mm-hmm. George Mason out here in the suburbs, number two. University of Tennessee. Wow. Carnegie, Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. Mellon. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And there's a whole scale of how they judge, and I have no idea exactly what that is. But then, then, then let's look at the bottom that are rated at the very bottom. Really, UC- Northwestern, yeah. UC Berkeley, but where there is, there must be, and and huh. I know that Yale and Harvard are right near the bottom. Really, but they they're making such efforts to uphold yeah. freedom of expression yeah. again. And so I I would I would want to like dissect those rankings. They could be right, but so it, you know anything like that is going to capture a particular moment in time. And so when you ask the questions, you have to look at the methodology to understand. You know what you want to take away from it, and I haven't done that. So, and they judge that on the basis of how open the campus is and all that stuff. And some campuses have a lot more activities than others, as you know. Yeah. Um, the University of Chicago is number one, and people often cite them mm-hmm. as having the strongest statement. And I, I've got here a John Ellison, Dean of Students at the college. Uh, he wrote to the class of 2020, and and you know the person that uh, at um, Chicago that. Did a whole study on this? Well, Jeff Stone led the committee. Led the committee, yeah. yeah. And what what did the committee do? Well, they came up with the principles of free expression, which the faculty endorsed. And it says here, once here you'll discover that one of the University of Chicago's defining characteristics is our commitment to freedom of inquiry and expression. Our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial, and we do not condone the creation of the intellectual safe space where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. Mm-hmm. You said you like the trigger warnings. Well, I guess, you know, how you parse that is very important because I have been on a panel um, with University of Chicago, former University of Chicago students, and I think we can agree that a university can't be a safe space, you know, because 
learning has to take place. There, you, you have to let ideas collide. But there can be safe spaces within the university. In other words, if you're a student from a disadvantaged background, you might need a place to retreat where you can feel completely safe and at home. But that doesn't mean you're not engaged in larger issues in the classroom. What's interesting to me is, you know, there are safe spaces that we don't call safe spaces, athletic teams on college campuses at small liberal arts colleges are, are safe spaces. So I want those guys out of their safe, and women, out of their safe spaces just as much as I want uh, students of color out of their safe spaces and interacting because it's through that interaction that we really create a dynamic intellectual life. When I grew up uh, and went to college, it was a fairly quiet period right before the Vietnam War. Yeah, very quiet, yeah. <laughs> very quiet. <laughs> yes. What's happened? Since then. Yeah. That's yeah. Like the cycle, you know, the pendulum swung back. It's kind of, in some sense, a renewal of some of the same what caused sentiments it, and feelings. What caused it is a variety of things. I think a big one is something I've written about, which is the privatization of government which is kind of where we've taken all kinds of uh, things that were previously done by government employees, employees and turned them over to the private sector. And on its face, that's, that's a good thing. You know, we can be more efficient. We can let market values drive things, and that's, that's good. But I think it's changed the tenor of government and, in a sense, made increasingly large proportion of the population feel that their elites don't represent them, don't speak for them, and are acting in their own self-interest rather than the interests of the common good. And I think that's directly linked to the privatization of so many functions. Uh, you had a book in 2009. Yeah, that's the book. One yeah. Nation Under Contract, yeah. which talks about privatization a lot. Yeah. You said it, the word elite, and you hear the word elite, yeah. you heard it from Charles Murray, you hear it from conservatives. You mm-hmm. heard Newt Gingrich talks about the elite media all the time. Sure. How would you define elite well, elite, elites in any society are the people with the power influence, right? And let's face it, this town, Washington, has become enormously affluent over the course of the past three decades. I mean, think about You've been watching, you can speak to this, right? Yeah, Hasn't it changed? For 52 years. Yeah. I mean, I'm just back here for the first time. I'm like, oh my goodness, we've got all these amazing restaurants, but they're, they're, they're upscale. They're, people have gotten rich, and there's a consequence to that. You know, the people who are running our government institutions are increasingly part of an elite that's detached from ordinary people. That's not just true with government elites, it's true with financial elites. And so part of what we're seeing playing out in our politics is ordinary people realizing, hey, you've got the levers of power, and you're doing things to benefit yourself, you're not benefiting me. And that's a legitimate response from from both left and right. In 2015, $68 billion was sent to American colleges and universities for research and development. The Pell Grants are up to over $30 billion. There's a lot of, that's over $100 billion going to college campuses. Mm -hmm. What about the academic elites? And their particular position, they have the tenure, nobody can touch them, and so many of them their life revolves around the next grant that comes in mm-hmm. from the government. Mm-hmm. Well, there, when you talk about academic elites, I think it's important to talk about which disciplines. You know, are we in the, talking about natural sciences, social sciences, humanities? Are all very different things. I can speak from my own discipline, which is political science. And I think what I've seen in the course of my career is when we were at Harvard. You know, 
the idea of the best and the brightest, Mac Bundy, uh, Henry Kissinger, you know, the idea was to educate yourself and then go make a difference in the world, you know. Uh, and what's happened over time, I think, is you've seen think tanks develop in Washington, and they're more concerned with the policy, real-world issues. And then uh, there are exceptions to this, but there are departments of political science. They're talking about theoretical concepts, methodological debates that are less directly connected to real-life policy issues. And so in some sense, uh, that's a horrible thing because people with tenure are the ones that can really speak truth to power. People at think tanks don't have that same freedom because they can be fired. So I'd like to see departments of political science back in the fray debating policy issues because they have something that the rest of the thinking or chattering classes don't have, which is tenure. And tenure means you can't be fired. That's a big thing in Washington. I mean, I've seen it myself uh, when I've testified before Congress that this is an enormous asset because I can speak the truth and no one can take away my livelihood. So that almost makes me feel like I have a moral obligation to not be a partisan, to speak freely, to encourage people to think for themselves uh, because, because I'm in a unique and privileged position in that regard. Here's a recent incident. This, this is only 30 seconds. Back September the 27th at the College of William and Mary, mm. uh, the executive director of the ACLU's Virginia chapter. Right, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and Black Lives Matter challenged this person. Let's just watch a little bit of this and see sure. what your take is on this yeah. one. And I'm going to talk to you a bit about uh, knowing your rights and protests and demonstrations, which this illustrates very well, and I'll appreciate it. And uh, then I'm going to respond to questions from the moderators, and then any questions that there are from the audience. A-C-L-U, you protect So they're basically saying that the ACLU protects Hitler, too. Yeah. They need to be educated. You know, when you see 18 to 21-year-olds doing stuff, and are those students or activists? I have no idea. You've got, you've got two things going on here. One, you know, students are 18 to 21 years old. They're still learning and growing. Uh, and they don't have a real historical sense. So they can make statements like that, and they have no historical context to understand it, they don't understand how American constitutional democracy operates. And to, for me, my job as an educator is to help them have that context, not to tell them to think a different way, but to say, well, just look at how extremist actions or violent actions have played out in history. Have they ever led to the sorts of things you want to see realized? And once you become educated, you realize the role of unintended consequences, and you realize that most of the great breakthroughs in the world come through nonviolent action. But you know, you, you can't tell people that. They've got to own it and learn it for themselves. You can just keep asking them questions so they can arrive at some of those conclusions on their own. So that's the student piece. They need to be educated. The, the, the activist piece, you know, that's a horrible thing because the Black Lives Matter movement is a diverse movement and you can have some extremists speaking out 
and people decide the whole movement is about that. And you even have direct evidence of Russian meddling to try to paint Black Lives Matter that way. So we all have to be critical thinkers and, and say, you know, question the reality that's presented to us in the media and think for ourselves. And the best way of doing that is, you know, go speak to some people in Black Lives Matter. Talk to your neighbor. That's when you really realize what people think and feel. Back in June, because of your incident and others, Senator Grassley had a hearing. Mm. Uh, and yeah. interestingly enough, after the <clears throat> William and Mary thing, the uh, student that testified was a guy named Zachary Wood. Uh, he was at Williams College. Hmm. And uh, he says he's a liberal Democrat. And here's what he says about the whole student issue. I identify as a liberal Democrat who supports many progressive causes. Yet I adamantly believe that students should be encouraged to engage with people and ideas that they vehemently disagree with. At Williams, the administration promotes social tolerance, often at the expense of political tolerance. In my time at Williams, I cannot name a single conservative speaker that has been brought to campus by the administration. In classrooms, liberal arguments are often treated as unquestionable truths. In some cases, conservative students even feel the need to refrain from stating their opinion in fear of being shut down. I appreciate the desire of my administration to ensure that all students on campus feel included. Yet, I deplore the state of free speech and intellectual freedom on my college campus. Hmm. Williams, a big liberal arts school yes. in Massachusetts. Um, did he say anything you want to comment on? That's a wise and articulate young man. And I think it's great you're showing this clip because it allows me to say that I have many... You can't paint with a broad brush what students of color feel. Because on the one hand, you have some wanting to shut down Charles Murray. On the other hand, you have some in my office saying, this is horrible. I don't agree with this, but yet if I speak out, I'm being seen as a traitor to my people. Nobody wants to be that. So that's, the, that's, that's a toxic environment that needs to be changed. Traitor to what people, though? You know, they, they make them feel as though they are somehow, you know, an Oreo. You know, black on the outside, white on the inside, and that's bad because you shouldn't be undermining the cause of bringing about justice for African Americans who, let's be, <laughs> let's be honest here, this is America's original sin. We've got a lot of work to do in that realm. And so it's a real debate about how you bring about the change you want to see. And it's unfortunate to me that there are some very smart uh, people who have said publicly they're giving up on America. I would never give up on America for all its flaws. If you look at its trajectory since the revolution, you know, it's this story of gradual progress to make those ideals reality. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda calls it, you know, America, that great unfinished symphony in the closing lines of Hamilton, and I like that phrase. So we've got a lot of work to do, but a symphony is a beautiful thing, and there aren't a lot of symphonies out there in the world. So what I want to say to, to radicals, my radical students is, okay, yeah, this is wrong and this is wrong, but what would you propose as an alternative to the rule of law in the American Constitution? That's where it gets tricky and challenging. Speaking of a, you know, the <clears throat> an ongoing attempt to change things, 
Johns Hopkins University just got a one and a half, one hundred and fifty million dollar grant mm. to facilitate restoration of open and inclusive discourse from the Niarchos Foundation. Hmm. <clears throat> that's that's the Greek family, the Niarchos. Interesting. Group. Yeah, yeah. What can what can a foundation do with one hundred and fifty million dollars to improve the discussion? Uh, that we've been talking about here about open dialogue. It's funny that you say that because obviously it's it's money is a good thing. You can do great things with money. You can bring in speakers and outside thinkers who can help you know you to parse these these difficult issues. But for me, this is a matter of individual responsibility. That if you want to um, encourage open and inclusive dialogue, we can all model the behavior we want to see. Which is another way of saying that stop believing that ad hominem attacks substitute for a genuine argument. That's so much of what we see on television today um, and in our discourse are these partisan labels and you've got to think that way or you're somehow cast out of the tribe. Well, I want people to think for themselves. I want them to challenge those labels. And that's particularly important to me in a big data world because let's face it, this last election and the Brexit election were very much the creation of the clever manipulation of people through firms like Cambridge Analytica who basically figured out algorithms that you could determine from social media certain emotional buttons and if you push those buttons you get the people to vote that way. Well what's the antidote to that? The antidote to that is don't be an algorithm. Be a human. Think for yourselves. And then you can't be manipulated, either by your government or by, you know, large technology companies or by the Russians, for that matter. If we all think for ourselves, we solve a lot of problems simultaneously. You said that you're at the New America Foundation? Yes. What does it do? Who runs it? Anne-Marie Slaughter. Uh, and it's created to thinking about uh, America. It's, it's a think tank that's devoted to thinking through some of the challenges America faces in the digital age. More specifically, so. And what kind of a contract does somebody like you have with them? Is it a limited to a year? Yes, yes. So I'll be there for a year, and uh, I have a nice home and people to speak with, and it's a it's a wonderful place to be. And now that you've seen a little bit of the foundation world in Washington, what's your take? Oh, I've seen it before, and uh, it performs a valuable function. But I think what you can see is that it has its limits. So there's very much, again, as I was saying earlier, a role for tenured academics to make a contribution to policy debates because I think we have this advantage that we're not bought by anyone. Were you all set up in advance of what happened in March to do the New America Foundation, or did they come to you after that and say, we've got a home for you for a year? I had a sabbatical, and it was kind of up in the air. I had different plans, and they were changed because of what happened to me. I was supposed to finish one book and start another. I haven't finished the book. So my life kind of uh, had all the pieces thrown up into the air. But, yeah, they were kind enough to give me a home when I decided to stay in Washington for the year. Are there any residual health problems you have as uh, after all this time? A little bit. Um, I still have a couple of muscles in my neck that misbehave. But I think I'm almost back to complete recovery. I feel like my brain is functioning decently, which is a good feeling. I, I missed it. Um, it's nice to be able to, you know, I, I appeared on time. You know, I was having a lot of trouble 
back in the spring about just getting out the door on time. That was enormously difficult for me. Uh, so yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling strong and almost 100%. After that incident, did anybody who was re responsible for that come to you and apologize? No. And I would like that. Do you know who it was? I have some ideas. I do have some ideas. And I um, wouldn't want to see anybody punished or suspended or anything like that, but I think it would be a very constructive thing for students who were involved in the shutting down of this speech that led to my injury to apologize. Why wouldn't you want to see someone punished? Because I think you have to make a distinction. See, okay, there, there are a number of layers to this. One, what dis disturbs me about what happened at Middlebury was that I think students were actively encouraged by some members of the faculty to do things that were not in their interest. And that upsets me. So 18 to 21 year olds are still developing and um, need to be advised in, in the right ways. But I think I'll just, I think I'll just leave it at, at that. Um, To say that I would fault some faculty more than the students for what happened on Middlebury's campus. And do you campus. know who they are? Of course. And have they apologized in any way to you? Some of them. Yes, some of them have. Uh, I think, I think there's, a, there's a, a real belief on the part of the people who are more radical. They want to say that what happened outside the lecture hall has nothing to do with what happened inside the lecture hall. And to me, they're directly connected. Because shutting down speech is an invitation to violence. We have these heated, passionate exchanges of views precisely to avoid having to pull out guns or swords or do, you know, go have a duel. Uh, and so when you shut down speech, you're basically inviting violence. But I think the, the people who supported some of the extremist actions, at least at the time, thought, well, that happened outside, and they, wanna f they also want to... Uh, say that it was the result of outside forces, but it's all very much interconnected. Our guest has been Professor Allison Stanger, who is with Middlebury College, currently in Washington with the New America Foundation. Be back in the classroom in January? No, no, not for two years. Two years? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure and honor. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.